Greetings again to God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Last time we finished with Genesis chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11, uh, where we see man, in essence, denying his guilt instead of acknowledging and uh, you know his uh, guilt in the matter and repenting and remaining uh, clothed, so to speak. Instead of that, he became uh, naked, not only physically, but which he was anyway, and there was nothing wrong with that, but he became naked spiritually. And that's the, the intent of the scripture more than anything else. It's a spiritual nakedness in which he found himself that caused him to feel guilty and to feel, uh, feel ashamed. And both of them were ashamed and so they had to cover themselves. Uh, in other words, uh, whenever we do something wrong, we are looking for cover. Uh, that's, that's the reality of things. That's the way we do things. That's human nature. And so when he told him, uh, why, why did you do those things? Why did you eat of the tree? Verse 11 of which I commanded you that he should not eat instead of uh, acknowledging it. You know, you just uh, blame uh, God, in essence, for giving him a woman that made him do it. And uh, Eve was not far behind him. When God, uh, in verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman did not say, Well, I'm sorry, I've done wrong, I'm guilty. And uh, uh, Adam should have repented too. Uh, I'm not going to follow his example, I'm going to be honest. No, she followed the example of Adam, and that's the, the way human beings act. Uh, we call this phrase, monkey see, monkey do. Uh, in other words, if you have a good example, you follow a good example. If you have a bad example, you follow a bad example. If you are with the wise, you become wise, as the proverb would say. If you are with the fool, you become a fool. If you are the righteous, you become righteous. And she did what was natural. And she, again, just like Adam, uh, refused to acknowledge her guilt. And so she said, well, uh, the devil made me do it. You see, instead of saying that uh, I was responsible for it, uh, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And it's true, the, the serpent deceived her. That's true, that's the guilt of, of the serpent. And it's true what Adam said that, well, the woman that he gave me, she gave me, and uh, I ate. That was true, too. What was not true is that I've got my responsibility in it. I've got my guilt. I am wrong. And because I am wrong, I've done something wrong. That's not because he gave me a woman. And the same thing with Eve. I am wrong, she should have said. And that's why I listened to the serpent. Because if I was right, I would not have listened to the serpent. And that's what repentance is all about. Being willing to acknowledge we are wrong. We think wrong. We feel wrong. We do things wrong. That's why we do what we do. Obviously, when we are wrong, then Satan will get into the picture and tempt us. But if we are right, Satan is not going to be able to do it. We're going to be able to resist the devil. And he shall flee from us. And he obviously was not about to flee from Eve when he knew that she's going to give him to the temptation. He knew human nature. And so Eve being wrong and Adam being wrong, it was easy for, for the serpent to get the best of them. And that's what we find ourselves here. Uh, humanity is in the same condition. They are wrong, and so they do things wrong. And because they are wrong, people come and deceive them. And because we are wrong, we allow others to think for us. 
And because we are wrong, that's our human nature, as God would say through the prophet Jeremiah in uh, chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately, the English translation, the King James translation is desperately wicked, which is a mistranslation again. It's desperately sick, ill, unwell. You see, the word uh, in Hebrew there is anush. Anush is generally used for a terminal sickness. And so the heart of man is terminally sick. You see, it allowed bacteria, it allowed a virus to infect it, to infest it, to corrupt it. And so it is at a point of death. As Paul would say, in time past you were dead in your sins. When we give into sin, we become dead. We're morally sick. And so we need a physician. And that's why Christ is calling himself a great physician. And he came to heal the sick, not to, to heal the righteous. Righteous people don't need to be whole. Of course, most people think they're righteous, they're not. Uh, they're sick people. Uh, righteous people know that they're still sick. And that's why they acknowledge constantly their need for Christ and for his blood. As the prophet Isaiah said, All of our righteousness are as filthy garments before you. Righteous Isaiah, the prophet, realized that when we are in this human condition, not perfect yet, not divine, there's going to be sickness in us. And even all of our righteousness in comparison to your righteousness is but filthy garments. And a converted mind thinks that way and feels that way. Not that we need to put ourselves down beyond that which is uh, necessary, but to recognize the nature that is in us is sick. If Adam and Eve recognized that, which at this point they did not, they would have repented. And that's when we repent, when we acknowledge our sickness, and we do not uh, lash at others for correcting us. We'll say, well, that's true. There's sickness in me. I need help. Uh, that's a humble mind. And that's the kind of a mind that uh, God desires. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have this mind. And so they rejected repentance. Which, in essence, God, as he was coming into the Garden of Eden, he gave them an opportunity to repent. He didn't come down on them. He didn't begin accusing them. He just said, where are you? In other words, where are you not only physically speaking, in your state of mind, where are you? And that's what he's telling to all of us, God. Where are you? You see? And if we know where we are, then we know where we are going or where we need to go. But if we do not know where we are, in other words, if we do not acknowledge our sinfulness, how are we going to proceed and travel on the way that leads to perfection, to purity, the righteousness of God? And so Adam and Eve were in that condition. They didn't know where they are. They got lost and they don't, didn't know where they were. So they would not even acknowledge the fact that they were lost. That they were in confusion. And so they blame, Adam blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent. We don't know yet who the serpent is at this point. Later on we find out. And uh, how can the serpent talk to begin with? Well, obviously serpents, physical animals, they don't speak. Even though one particular donkey did speak, but that's because God spoke through that donkey, not because the donkey spoke. And that's exactly what was happening here. A spirit being took over the brain, so to speak, of a physical animal, a counterpart of him, 
serpent and spoke through that serpent. And Eve, being naive, thought, well, the serpent talks. Maybe she understood better. We don't know exactly. So the Lord God said to the serpent, now the, well, the serpent is not going to ask him questions. Why did he do it? Because he knew who the serpent was, and he knew his girl, and the serpent knew his girl, and the serpent was not talking. He wasn't talking back because he knew that he was guilty. At least in that sense, you might say the serpent was the only honest guy of the three. He did not say, somebody else made me do it. He didn't blame God. <laughs> he knew his guilt. And uh, it's ironic that it happened that way. Of the three, Adam and Eve and the serpent, the serpent was the only honest person in the sense that he did not say, well, somebody else made me do it. Uh, but by his silence, he was acknowledging his sin. And so the, he said to the serpent, that is God, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And of course, he's speaking to the physical uh, creature here. He's not speaking to the, uh, only to the spirit being. Because what we read here is a double meaning, physically and spiritually. You're cursed more, uh, more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And the spiritual uh, concept of here is that the angelic beings are basically, uh, actually it's the other way around, the animal world is basically created after the angelic beings. And therefore, when he says you're cursed above all cattle, and above all beasts of the field, he is, in essence, saying that you are going to be cursed more than all uh, the, the other angels who are also in the animal form. And also to the physical serpent, he's saying that you are going to be cursed among all the beasts of the field, of more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust, and of course Satan is not in that condition, but the physical serpent is in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And again, double meaning here. And it's interesting that he says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman. He didn't say, I'll put an enmity between you and the man. And there's a spiritual meaning here. In other words, the people of God, which are going to form the church of God, the woman, is always going to be in a state of battle, of war with Satan. And Satan is going to always make war with the woman, as you read in Revelation 12. And so you see the spiritual connotation is carried there. Uh, in essence, God is, is uh, saying here to, to his bride, to the wife to come, to his people in the future, uh, I'm going to allow Satan to remain on this earth, and since human nature is uh, just like Adam and Eve, uh, we have sin, we have very corruption, we have iniquity, and we tend to blame others. God is going to provide us uh, this constant uh, thorn in the flesh, and it's up to us to overcome him by resisting him. If we've done it to begin with in the Garden of Eden, we wouldn't have to do it in the past 6,000 years. But because we haven't done it, we're going to do it not only as we did in the past 6,000 years, but even in the millennium, and even after that, in the second resurrection, and you see that many are going to fall for it again, and will have to be destroyed. And so it has a prophetic connotation here, as well as a physical one, where the physical serpents uh, are going to always uh, be uh, an enemy of men. That is, the ones that come in contact with men anyway. And for that matter, even the beast of the field, uh, with the devouring animals that we have uh, 
be it the lion, be it the ferocious animals, um, or be it the bacteria, or viruses, or whatever. Uh, we are doing battle constantly with the, with the physical manifestation of angelic beings. And only when Christ will come and totally heal us from everything, uh, from the spiritual uh, manifestation of the animalistic world and the creatures on this earth, uh, until then we're going to continue to pay the penalty. But if we obey his laws and commandments, God will deliver us from it. So there is an awful lot that, uh, that is uh, embedded in the scriptures here. And so God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Speaking again physically and spiritually, uh, physically, well, humanity is going to, to uh, contend with, uh, with the, the snakes and serpents. And if you remember, there was an actual uh, manifestation of it when God wanted to punish his people in the wilderness. He sent snakes after them, serpents, fire serpents, it said, and they beat them. And then the, he, he told them to, to create the, a brass serpent and to put it there, that is, he told Moses to do it and lift it up, which is again was symbolizing his own future. And by looking at it, in other words, by putting the blame where it belongs, by acknowledging their guilt and acknowledging the guilt of the one who also led them into that rebellious attitude, that they were going to find repentance and be healed. And so you see many connotations into that in the scripture. And so, and that was the woman, the woman of God, Israel, that he married. And, the, and you see the enmity there between, uh, between her and the snake and the serpent, physically and spiritually. And God used that analogy and then used himself as the one who is going to be lifted just like the snake was lifted up. And of course, in his case, the purpose was again to bring them repentance and to bring them healing. That is to his wife, that is to the woman, that is to all mankind also. And so he says, he shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. And notice the difference. The seed of Adam, which is going to be the physical and the spiritual, the seed of the woman, is going to bruise the head. Now when he bruised the head, that's a total mortal death, destruction. But when you bruise the heel, well, that's a temporary thing, you can heal, you can uh, recuperate from that. And in essence, that's what happens spiritually speaking. From the, the, the bruising of the heel, so to speak, that Satan has inflicted on, on, uh, on his creator, on his maker, on the son of man, on the son of, of Eve, Jesus Christ, uh, that was physical death, temporary death. And that was sort of the bruising of the heel, the, you know, the, the weakness of the flesh. This is what he destroyed, but he couldn't destroy the spirit. And yet, when the future is fulfilled, that's going to be totally different, as you can read in, uh, in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation. Where we see the, the final bruising of the head, not the heel, because from the bruising of the head there is no recuperation. It's, uh, we read in Revelation 20, in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. In his hand. And verse 2, and he laid hold of, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, speaking about uh, the scriptures that we are reading now in Genesis 3, who is the devil. So he's explaining who that serpent was. Uh, that is a spiritual manifestation of it. The devil and Satan. Devil means enemy, adversary. 
Uh, adversary could be a spirit being or it could be a man. A man can be a devil too. In other words, an enemy, an adversary. And bound him for a thousand years. And so that was a temporary bruising, so to speak. A thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that so that he should deceive the nations no more as he was doing it with Adam and Eve. So he has his responsibility for it. That he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished, but after these things he must be released for a little while. And then in verse 10 we see the final uh, bruising of the head. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire in the heaven of the at the end of the thousand years when he again deceived humanity, at least a part of them, as we read in verse 7 now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, spiritually speaking, and they came and tried to uh, uh, destroy the holy city, the beloved city, that is, destroy the people of God. And fire came down from heaven, from the Father who is still up in heaven, and uh, destroyed them. But their guilt is going to be placed on the one who led them into it. If they have acknowledged their guilt, they would not have been destroyed and devoured, but they were not willing to. And so, they too were bruised in the head, so to speak, in that sense, because of that. But the devil, it says in verse 10, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire. You see, they were destroyed physically, and they were devoured by the fire. But the devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire. In other words, they were not cast into the lake of fire, but he was. Because the lake of fire uh, was reserved for him. That lake of fire was a physical one. That was a fire that came down from heaven and destroyed them. And the lake of fire of Satan is a different thing. And yet people confuse the two and they think one and the other is the same. And they create a new doctrine around it. And so the devil was cast in, into the lake of fire and breached them. And here there is a perversion of the scripture that was added later on when the, when the doctrine of the heaven and hell became a part of the theology of the, great, of, the, of the church of Revelation 17. And so here, somebody injected those words to deceive people. And so it says, He was cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And that's not true because they were thrown into the lake of fire, but it was not the same lake of fire that Satan will be thrown into. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is, the devil and his demons, but not a uh, human being, the false prophet. Uh, they are going to be devoured and destroyed by God. Uh, the false prophet uh, before the thousand years and uh, the people that came against uh, the holy city that were deceived after the second resurrection, they are going to be destroyed by fire that comes from God and devours them and leaves them neither root nor branch and they become ashes. You see, they become ashes and ashes are not tormented anymore. And so lake of fire has to be understood that it is a double meaning. There's a lake of fire for man, which is a physical fire, and there's a lake of fire for Satan, which is a totally different thing. And people are confused between the two, and they think, well, the Satan is going to be destroyed too, on one hand, and be no more. And on the other hand, uh, people say that he's going to be tormented forever and ever. And, and that's what the scripture says. But man is not going to be tormented forever and ever. He's going to be destroyed and become ashes. And that's the reason why we have Leviticus 16, where it talks about the goat. That is, that's the reason for the Day of Atonement. 
We have uh, two goats that were being sacrificed year after year, and will be and that sacrifice will be resumed again after the coming of Christ. And, and the two sacrifices, because they are symbolic. One was for the Lord, for Jehovah, the Eternal, because He took the sins of humanity upon Him, and He became sin, so to speak. And so there was a need to kill Him. The sin must be put to death. And yet, if God did not resurrect Jesus Christ, that would have been the end of Him. But since God was going to resurrect Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was different than the, sac- than the other one, uh, the goat that was sent uh, temporarily, you know, it was bound temporarily, so to speak, but after that he was going to be thrown to the lake of fire. But as for God, he gave his life, and he was resurrected, and so the first goat was for him, and the second one is for Azazel. Well, anyway, all those things are explained as time goes by, in the law of God. In this case, you have the nut in the natural, so to speak, uh, the profound explanation of this whole matter uh, in, in a very condensed matter, manner. And so, in verse 16, he said to the woman, uh, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. And in Hebrew, the word sorrow is their sadness. In other words, when you're sad, it's because you've got sorrows. And uh, so he's going to multiply her sadness and your conception. And it's not the word, again, conception. Uh, it's very difficult to, to understand why, why do translators, who call themselves translators, uh, stumble over themselves and mistranslate. You didn't say here your conception, he says your pregnancy. In other words, the, pre- the process of pregnancy. I mean, no woman is going through sorrow and pain in conception with the exception of the, the, the defloration, but that, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the whole process, the whole process of, of uh, pregnancy and the conception uh, itself, uh, that, you know, the, the defloration where there is a little pain there and bleeding that happens only the first time. After that, there is no problem. It's all pleasure and joy. So obviously he's not talking about that. He's talking about the process of pregnancy where she's going to, to go through a hard time and ultimate, ultimately the, the, the pregnancy ends up with the, with the birth. And that's where the greatest pain comes. And that's what he's talking about in specific. So he's not talking about conception. He's talking about pregnancy and the end result of it. And he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. You see, this is what, uh, what he's talking about. Uh, the pregnancy that ends up uh, after nine months of uh, not uh, too good of a life, a uh, few months, uh, a lot of women, you know, vomit and have a lot of problems and nauseating and uh, difficulties and uh, all kind of cravings that drive them, you know, their husbands crazy now and then. But uh, it ends up with a total misery of a woman, not the man. Man is not going through that. And uh, I wouldn't say, thank God, because uh, even though that's the way it is, uh, uh, we're guilty of bringing that uh, reality upon women too. So we shouldn't uh, let ourselves off the hook. You know, that's why women uh, oftentimes say that it's all your fault when, when they give birth uh, to a child. And that's a reality. We all have to acknowledge our, our uh, guilt in it. And so he says to the woman, In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband. And uh, he's not talking only about the positive desire that a woman should have toward her husband, but he's talking about her need for him, uh, and she's going to depend on him. Uh, he's going to place her in a position, in essence, to be under him, which he didn't mean for it to be, to begin with. 
And for thousands of years, when women had no land, and it belonged always to the men, uh, a woman was totally dependent on a man. And so her desire was for the man. And even today, when women are more, more uh, emancipated, so to speak, uh, to a large degree, they're still not as well paid as, as men, and uh, therefore they, they, they desire a man to provide them uh, for a livelihood. And many of them are in misery, especially after uh, the terrible uh, thing uh, that is divorce brings on, on people. Many women find themselves in poverty after that, because there is no man around to care for them. And so this, this uh, concept has uh, a lot of uh, consequences. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And that's not a uh, good thing here. That's bad news for her. You see, up to now, he's not supposed to rule over here. And the word for rule here is dominion, or government. He's going to have a government over you. And if you remember, when we read previously in chapter uh, uh, 1, verse 26, God, in essence, said that we're going to create men in our image and in our likeness. And then he says, and let them have dominion, that is man. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds and uh, the air and uh, everything. In other words, so man was to have dominion, rule, government over the creation, never over his fellow man. But now woman was being put under subjection of man. And now he's going to rule her. And being man... And having human nature, obviously, was not going to do it the right way. And so the battle of the sexes began. And the enmity between the two began. And that's probably the major reason why Cain killed his brother Abel. He saw a lot of strife in the family. And that entered into his mind and heart. And he found out that the way you settle your, uh, your problems is by very dominion authority over somebody else. And he went to the ultimate by killing him. A lot of men in the past many, many thousands of years have abused women. Uh, you're probably all, all aware of, of uh, one of the laws, and it has been in many societies, in the English society, uh, for many centuries, where men had the right to beat his wife, to uh, lash her, you know, and uh, do things that uh, today we don't even conceive of. Uh, today you talk about uh, woman abuse, you know, abuse in marriage. Uh, but in the old days, uh, they actually had a law. And of course, man is the one that came up with that law in the English rule. That it, it's, a man has a right to beat his wife. And that's very sad. Well, that was a result of this very scripture. People that read that scripture and in their own mind were religious and never had the compassion and mercy of God in them, though they call themselves Christians, uh, they took advantage of this uh, statement here. And so they began to rule over their wives. And unfortunately, uh, even though that's not what God intended to begin with anyway, uh, that's the way it turned to be. And so it says, men shall rule over you. So, instead of man having the dominion over the creation, now he began to have dominion over his wife. And when you have dominion over your wife, well, you begin to extend it also to the children, and to your daughters, and to everything else. And so everything was going to go wrong now from now on. And then to Adam he said, in verse 17, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. In other words, you had no business listening to her. She should be in the business of listening to you. And that's why you read in the law that 
a man is to be, uh, that is a woman is to be subject to her husband, not the husband to be subject to his wife. And when you listen to somebody, you become subject to him. And when people listen to the minister, for example, they become subject to him. Now, if what he says is right, then you're subject to God, really. You're not subject to a man. But if what the man says, being the minister, being the, the boss, being the, anybody else, is not of God, you're becoming subject to men, and God does not want us to become subject to men, but subject to him. So, an awful lot of consequences uh, because of this uh, original, so to speak, uh, transgression. And so he says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, instead of being the head of the wife, as I appointed you to be, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you. So you see, Adam did two things. Eve was deceived and she ate of the fruit, of the, of the fruit. So she was subject to Satan instead of subject to God. But Adam, Adam did two things. First, he hated the voice of his wife, which is contrary to the law. Now, if what she said was right, that's, that's okay, no problem. But because what she said was wrong, and he hated that voice, he transgressed that. He neglected his responsibility. And for that matter, another woman should listen to her husband if what he says is wrong. Because then she becomes the subject to her husband in the wrong way. But we're all to be subject to God above all things and obey God rather than man or woman or whatever. And he says, because you have done that and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you see, the one that God commanded was Adam. He didn't command it Eve. It was up to Adam to explain to Eve, this is what God commanded us and you shouldn't do it. You see? And he did not do it. So God commanded him not to do it and he did it. And he says, and you shall, I told you not to eat of it. Because of that, you too have your curse. You too have your responsibility. You too have your guilt. And you did not repent of it. So I cannot even forgive you. And because of that, curse is the ground for your sake. He didn't say that to the woman, because that was not her job, so to speak, to, to provide the, the livelihood for the family. It was mainly the responsibility of men, and then all of them should be working together, the husband, the wife, the children. And so the ground that was to support Adam uh, is going to be cursed now. In toil you shall eat of it, instead of having an easy life, as I meant for you to be, and in the Garden of Eden, you have everything already made, you're going to have to sweat for it. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Not only are you going to have to work hard for it, I'm going to add another curse to it. So Adam too was pretty much cursed. And it's going to be all the day of his life. And not only Eve uh, was being punished in terms of the birth. And after, after all, you know, how many times you give birth to a child? Uh, some women have only one or two or three, and some have many. But in other cases, several times, and that's it. When it's over, it's over. You forget all about it. But here is Adam is going to have to wrestle for the rest of his life to make a living the hard way. So in essence, his punishment is greater in that sense. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Here again, you notice, he didn't say you're going to eat animals or fish or chicken or birds. You're not going to go hunting. He says you shall eat the herb of the field. So still, man is in that condition of, of vegetarian uh, state. In the sweat of your face, or uh, 
the face of your face, which is uh, which is the correct translation in the ancient uh, translation. That is the older one. It says in the face, in the sweat of your brow, which is not correct, but the face. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Or the word in Hebrew, Adama. Adama is where Adam was taken from. That's why his name was called Adam. Ground, in other words, soil. Uh, that was his name. Uh, what he was is what his name was. Uh, in essence, just like God. God is what he is. And so Adam was what he was. And uh, that is his name was what he was. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. And that was his fate. And of course, a temporary uh, success for Satan. And that's what the bruising of the heel is all about. It's a temporary success because that was not the end of the road. Uh, that was not the end of the story. God knew, and maybe Adam didn't know at this point, but God knew that he was going to bring him back to life, and uh, that is all of humanity back to life, and uh, deal with them, and uh, remove Satan, and give them his spirit. And the victory was to begin with God. That's why he could allow this whole process to happen. It's not that everything was lost. And Satan became the, the victor, victorious uh, among the two. That is God and Satan. In verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name, his wife's name, Eve, Chava, means Chaya, as, as I said, uh, I explained in the previous uh, lecture. Uh, her name was Chaya, means living, but as time went by, obviously people didn't like the word Chaya because Chaya is the same name for an animal. And so they, they changed it to Chava. But Adam called her Chayam, means living, a living being, because she was the mother of all living. Uh, verse 21, also for Adam, or Adam, and his wife, uh, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In other words, the word in Hebrew clothes is attire. He attired them with this, uh, with this cloth. It was not just uh, clothed them. He decorated them, so to speak. He, uh, he put something around them uh, so they would not feel shame. And that, that's what he did. So it's important to understand it from uh, the point of view of uh, the way it was described. And he put those, this attire on them uh, to glorify them. Because he did not want them to have a, a feeling of shame. And... Then men learned as time went by to uh, create all kinds of clothes that are not just there to cover your body, but to attire your body. And uh, that's what the fashion industry is all about. Attire, not just put something on. And that's a concept there. And so God still in his compassion and mercy is still beautifying his bride and his wife and his people and his children and Adam and Eve in spite of what they have done. Uh, there is the difference between that attitude of Adam and the attitude of, uh, of his creator. Attitude of Adam and Eve, when they were ashamed, they put uh, something around their body just to clothe themselves, in other words, to cover. But when God put clothes on them, it was to glorify them, uh, even though they were not anymore in the pure state as it should have been. And so that's exactly what God did. And in essence, here you find the first sacrifice ever. Because God, in order to take... Uh, the skin and attire then he had to kill sacrifice an animal and he was going to teach Adam and Eve a lesson and their children that when you kill it's because of transgression not because of righteousness 
And so God had to be the first one to do the killing because of the sin of man. And that's where the sacrifices came uh, into being. God did not intend that to be a reality in the life of man to begin with. He created them to be vegetarians. He created the animals themselves to eat uh, the herb of the field to be vegetarians. But when sin entered, there was a change now for the animal because serpent, symbolic of the animal world, led them into sin. And so now animals are going to pay the penalty uh, and uh, their blood is going to be shed to atone for sin. And you see, uh, the punishment there that came upon the serpent was physical and spiritual for him and his descendants and all and uh, the whole animal world. And uh, that's what you find here. And so God created, uh, began this precedence of killing an animal to atone for the sin of men. And then he used the claw, their skin to attire them. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Now remember what we read, uh, what we read uh, previously in chapter three, and verse, verse five. When Satan came, that is, a serpent came to Eve. This is what he said: For God knows, verse five, that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he was not quoting an error; he, he was quoting truth, but he was going to twist it. And so that's where he works. And so here again, God is saying those very things. So it's not that he lied to them, but he used truth to deceive them, to tempt them. Just like he was using truth when he was trying to tempt uh, Jesus Christ in the temptation, so to speak. He says, well, it says in the scriptures, uh, if you cast down yourself, you know, the angels will pick you up. And he constantly used the scriptures that he used Use truth to deceive. That's why he appears as an angel of light. That's why his ministers are also called ministers of righteousness. That is, they appear as ministers of righteousness. They bring the word of God. They teach for me. They tell you an awful lot of good things, an awful lot of righteous things, and they produce a lot of good fruit there too. And then they twist it. Now, in most cases, they are not even aware of it because they are ministers of their own spirit. But the ministers of God should not use the truth and twist it. They should teach only the truth in its purity. And sometimes when we are not aware of what kind of poison is still in us, we do it unintentionally. And that's when the sacrifice of, of guilt where there was no intention has been uh, created. When we've done things that we are not supposed to do, uh, then we acknowledge our guilt and we bring the sacrifice before God and God forgives us. And so that's, that's what we find here. And so now God is saying that, which earlier Satan said that. God says in verse 20, uh, verse 22, that is, yeah, verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. You see? So the Lord God now, Yehovah Elohim, we're speaking about the plural. And one of us, uh, in other words, at least there are two of us. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And you say, how can that be? How can a person eat a fruit of a tree, of a physical tree and live forever? Well, because God used that tree as symbolic for the Holy Spirit, he would have been bound, in that sense, to give the Holy Spirit to those who eat it. And that's where earlier, when he commanded Adam to eat of every tree, 
that is in the Garden of Eden, he commanded him also to eat of the tree of life. And so now if man is going to go and obey that command when he's not supposed to, he's going to, God will have to give him the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, this scripture doesn't make sense at all. Why would he expel him out of the Garden of Eden and even say that? Well, because God bound himself to give the Holy Spirit, he was going to prevent man from reaching that tree and eating and living forever. And so, in verse 23, in other words, when God uh, speaks, he does not lie. If that was the truth, but if you eat from that tree, you're going to live forever, then that was the truth. Though it is symbolic, uh, yet God is going to have to fulfill that. Just like eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was symbolic, and yet something happened there. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken, that is, to till the Adama, from which Adam was taken, the soil. So he sent him out there. So he drove him, that is, he expelled him, and the word in Hebrew is expelled him, uh, out of, he expelled out the man, and, and of course the woman, and he placed cherubim, at the, uh, that is Kruvim, Kruvim means the archangels, uh, one rank of angels, the two that generally are around the, the throne of God, but uh, there are others also. We're told only about two, but there are others, because that's a rank of many angels. We don't know how many. And so he placed Kruvim at the east uh, of the Garden of Eden. By the way, there is a, a vegetable uh, called uh, uh, Kruvit in Hebrew, which is uh, in English cabbage. And the reason why it was, it was called uh, Kruvit because the cherubim, you know, they place their, their wings above the throne and they, they, uh, their wings look like uh, the cabbage, you know, when you have those sleeves of the cabbage, one on top of the other. Uh, and so somebody uh, used that word uh, for cruvim for a cabbage, for a vegetable, because it reminded him of that, of that analogy. And so he placed cruvim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And the word for place here is uh, shahan. It comes from the word, uh, from uh, the word lashkin, that means to make, to dwell. And from that word came the word mishkan, which means the sanctuary. In other words, the sanctuary of God that was placed within the tent of, which is called the tabernacle, uh, that's called the dwelling place of God. And uh, so, it's the same word here. Later on, when we get to the to the description of the sukkah, that is the, the tabernacle, the feast of booth, we'll see the analogy there and the real meaning of it, because there's a lot of confusion about what the feast of tabernacles is all about, not understanding again the meaning of the word that God used. He used the word sukkah, not tabernacle. They're two different things, totally different and no relationship. And so that's what he placed there. He placed the cherubim, that means... Uh, God, in essence, through the Caribbean, was dwelling in that place uh, and uh, to guard the way to the tree of life. And so man was cut off from the tree of which he was commanded previously to eat. And that was a sad story for all of humanity. Because from that time on, only the very few were going to be allowed to approach the tree of life. In other words, we don't call God, we don't choose God, God chooses us. We don't come before him unless he called us, no more than you go before a king unless you've been invited. You see, you don't just go and knock on the door and you're, and you're allowed in. 
And that's the way it is with God. Only what the ones that God personally chooses and causes them to approach him. As he said, who is it that dares to approach me? Nobody can approach God unless God calls him. And so now the concept of the calling entered into uh, the vocabulary of the spiritual uh, life of man. In order to appear before God, God has to call us. And so from now on, God was going to call only very few people, very few individuals. And he's going to call those people, and he's going to deal with them, and walk with them, and he's going to call them for a purpose, not just uh, for their own good, and that is basically to leave a witness on the face of the earth, which now is going to be full of transgression of the reality of him, of his truth, of the purpose of life, of the destiny of man, of all that. And that's why he called all those people uh, witnesses. And that's, in essence, where the concept of a congregation, in English, later on it uh, was used for the name of church, came into being. The concept for congregation in Hebrew is Eda, means uh, body of witnesses. And Israel were called Eda, that means a body of witnesses, because they were to witness to the world, not just uh, to themselves of who God is, what his law is, what the purpose of life is all about. And after that came uh, the spiritual church of God, so to speak, the spiritual body of witnesses. And we shall cover that very thoroughly when we come to chapter 11, the end of chapter 11 of Genesis with the story of Abraham, and then chapter 12. We'll go through the the concept, the understanding, the profound meaning of the church of God. And at this point, Adam and Eve could have produced that church of God, so to speak, but because they were not willing to obey the voice of God and eat from the tree of life and all the other trees, but instead ate of their own tree, now they were not allowed anymore to be witnesses of God, they were not allowed to approach God unless God called them or some of them and brought them into repentance and to a relationship with him. And so at this point we're going to stop. This is a natural break. And again, this is Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. Until next time. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.